0: Welcome to Upfront, the podcast. I'm Katie Hannan. This week, I'm speaking to David Gorman. David struck a chord with a lot of people when he appeared on my show on Monday night. He's a recovering cocaine addict who found himself in the throes of addiction for almost five years. Having started to use the drug socially, he eventually found himself amassing drug debts of 80,000 euro, which he was able to pay back with the help of his family. So yeah, so I'm going to go back to the start. So you're from Kulak and you were saying football was a huge part of your life.
1: Yeah, football was absolutely everything for me, especially in Koulak, It's like everybody was just playing football. It was just always the thing to do.
0: And well, like, were you playing with a team or was it just with your friends? No,
1: so since the age of five, uh, I would have been playing for a football team and I would have been very good for my age. And... But I had more clubs than Tiger Woods, so I literally just went from football team to football team to football team. But yeah, football would have been a massive part of my life.
0: And you were working as well, were you?
1: Yeah, well, I was working. I started off in a warehouse job and then like I ended up going into an apprenticeship. It was the whole football injury that basically led to my addiction, kind of.
0: Yeah, what, so what happened with, what happened with the injury? What happened to you?
1: Yeah, so I basically, I have a complete tear of the ACL and cartilage in my left knee. I still have an L1, we actually getting an operation on it this year. And when that happened, like that sort of led to the addiction. And that sounds very stupid to some people, like, uh, so you couldn't kick a ball up and down the field, and that led to your addiction. But like my whole family are involved in football. it have been a huge part of my life. All of my friends are true football. So when I couldn't play it anymore, I just felt like I lost a, self, like a, a part of myself. And um, before I could even get like my knee fixed, or looked at, I was offered a job over in Denmark. And I had not going out a bit more on the weekends because I, I just lost like a sense of community. And we ended up moving to Denmark. And then that is when my addiction just completely escalated. I was basically living over there. I had no family around to hold me accountable. I was living with lads of my own age. And then that was just when it really did start to escalate.
0: I know that we were talking on the program this week about how, just how it is everywhere at the moment. Okay. That it's like, there's no getting away from it. It's just, it's not even thought about or talked about much. It's just there for, for people uh, of, you know, in their 20s and 30s now. Was that, it? was, was that what it was like? I mean, was it literally... Just a casual thing that that pretty much everyone you knew was doing.
1: Exactly. And then even like, so when we went to Denmark, because I noticed myself using um, cocaine, like just I, I, so I could see it was sort of getting a hold of me. So I said, right, hey, this is a perfect opportunity. I can go over here and get away from it. And I was walking over here with loads of Irish lads, and they were actually bringing it over with them. So and then, yeah, so there was no escape.
0: They were bringing it over from Ireland?
1: Bringing it over from Ireland, uh, selling it over there and basically making more money selling cocaine than they were actually walking in Denmark.
0: Can you explain for somebody who do, who doesn't, hasn't done cocaine, hasn't done the, a line or whatever, what does it feel like? What was the buzz?
1: yeah so it's it's like a sort of like a feeling of euphoria like you're just more energized you're buzzing you're just talking all the time and just just lots and lots of you just have lots and lots of energy like you talk about anything to anyone and i would have been really a hyper person and that made me extra hyper and that's why i think i liked it a lot but also because of my knee injury it sort of numbed me from like what was going around and I didn't have to deal with my feelings when I took it so that's why I think it got a hold of me a lot quicker.
0: Yeah because I think a lot of people take it for confidence so- socially you know people who, who might not have that confidence.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, th- this is what does it for them uh, but for you it, it was kind of doing a dual thing it was it was it was that but also as you say you, you were kind of you you had that issue going on that you you felt a bit separated from your old life
1: yeah and then that just like made me not think about it and it took me away from it and stuff like that but yeah that's exactly what i done for me It basically it basically doesn't know me and i don't give you it was enjoyment at the start but it quickly caught that like even every time i had done it i regretted doing it but i just couldn't stop doing it
0: okay so how does it start you start with what a line or two on a, on a Friday night or a Saturday night. Just explain to me how much cocaine you started off on and how how it escalated. Yeah,
1: so we basically like just friends going out on the weekend and they're like, do you want to go halves on a bag? And like a bag would be one gram, so 50 euro each, 100 euro a bag. And you just like tip away at that for the night and then that'd be it. And then that'd go on. Then eventually lead to you, right? I want to get my own bag. And then you would get a full bag to yourself. And then you'd get two bags, sorry, because in case I'm going to a party after the nightclub and it just progresses, progresses. And the thing about cocaine is like, you, like you probably at the start, you can do one and leave like at that. But then you just want more and more and you keep on chasing it. And like you're texting people at five in the morning, are you around? But you, you always just want more of it.
0: And was there ever any difficulty getting the, your hands on those bags?
1: No, not, not at all. Sure, like, like I even said when I was on your show, like, like they let me basically rake up a 20,000 euros bill, so. And, like, it's just crazy. Like, oh, it, what it does, like, I had no pride in myself. Like, I'd literally send messages the length of essays, like, just begging people, like, you're around, please, can you give it to me, boy? Oh, you always, always got it. Always got it.
0: And was there ever any fear in your social group that there'd be any consequences, like legal consequences for carrying it or, or even
1: selling it? Uh, no, no whatsoever. So like, I, I never sold or anything like that. But even when we was going to meet people to get the bags off them, like, it's not like we're going down dark alleys. They're pulling up on your road, car window down, there you go. Like, there's, there's no fear whatsoever. Like.
0: Okay, so you're in Denmark. At what point do you have a sort of a feeling of, I'm in trouble here.
1: Um, so that, that's when I was only doing it on the weekends, but then it progressed into sort of like, um, like nearly close enough to every day and that went on for a year and I was on very good, uh, money in Denmark, but I was left with probably like 20 euro, 50 euro from myself at the end of the week. And I was over there for a year. I came home and I was to go to fuss and so my money dropped down very low and i had already like got up a few bills so that's when i basically had to just get a warehouse job was working night shifts i just had to get get some sort of job that was making some sort of money to pay these back and then when i went on the night shift then that was like the worst year of my life because then i was using during the night during the day and that was constant
0: so you were using it at work to keep you going during the night
1: I was using at work yeah and that's like, that's basically I sort of got away with it because you're walking like nights there's not many people around I probably walked with like four other people but that's all I literally done I literally just went to work locked myself in my bedroom went to work locked myself in my bedroom and i just done that for years
0: okay what point of this did your family start saying to you are you okay
1: so like they they knew immediately they didn't really know when i was in denmark i was like how could they but when i got home i had to tell them because like i owed a bit of money out at that time and yeah just like like i was was in my 20s there's not really much they can do like what are they gonna do like lock me in my house like you know yourself but and then but it did destroy them like even like i'd be in my bedroom and i wouldn't be coming out till like two o'clock and my family would be afraid to go into my bedroom okay so i passed away overnight like they seen how serious it was and they got into touch with rehabs for me and i was supposed to go to rehab during the first lockdown but there was no beds available due to coronavirus and then by the time a bed did become available I i was two months clean And I decided not to go in and and that obviously worked out in my favour. But they got me a drugs counsellor and that was such a huge help.
0: Okay, describe to me what all of this was doing to you physically.
1: Yeah, so it was basically just waste. I wasted away. Um, That picture that was uh, shown on your show, the big bird, like the reason I had that was just the oil to my face because they're just sinking in so much. Um, Like literally I was 50 kilos, I'm 80 kg now and... It didn't take me quick to get back up to that weight. I just I wasn't eating. Um, like, if I was to get like a shine like a in delivery, my, my family had to pay for it for me. Like, in them four to five years in addiction, I did not buy myself a pair of socks. I literally didn't buy anything. It was just all the money went back to paying drug debts.
0: And talk to me a bit about those drug debts then. Were you worried about. What would happen if you weren't going to produce
1: the money? And uh, to be honest with you, that's when things are getting a bit dangerous because coming towards the end of my addiction, I stopped caring. I, I didn't care why I was out, but these people that I was getting the drugs off, these weren't big gangsters or anything like, I, I knew all these people, I grew up with them, I played football when I was younger. And I was just like, once they were sort of getting money off me at the end of every month, that they didn't care, and that's, I I have many people now saying to me, like, are you not worried, like, speaking out about it now, like, I'm sure of what they'll do, but they do not care about me, literally, I'm gone now, there's another person in my place, it's just such a profitable business, and everyone that's getting involved in it, that I am absolutely nothing to them, you know?
0: But, uh, again, I'll ask you, like, were you worried that if you weren't going to come up with that money at the end of the month, that there would be consequences? serious consequences for you
1: I, I never really thought about it, to be honest because I, I always was giving money back at the end of the month like if for y'all we like so i was getting off about 15 different people so it'd be like i'll give this i'll give you 200 this month i'll give this fella 300 i'll give this fella 400 but i never really nobody ever threatened me or ever said anything like that because they were always getting something off me but now if we was to dodge them like and go hide then definitely like they definitely would have came, came to my house and stuff like that so but i was always giving them some and we never like they rang me i'd always answer the phone
0: and were you able to actually pay back at 30 i mean you said eighty thousand over the whole period maybe yeah. in debt and thirty thousand at one point was was how much you were facing into were you able to actually deal with that kind of debt from just from your salary
1: um yeah, so like literally four to five years, like if you have a severe like cocaine addiction like I did, eighty grand is not a lot of money when you when you are paying that off. So like at one stage was get always making nine hundred euro a week and nine hundred euro a week for a full year I was going towards cocaine, like that's I don't know how much that is, probably forty or fifty thousand a year. So like easily that's easily done. But um yeah, it's just it's just insanity. Like for four to five years of that money I like like I said when I owe the 30,000 now, so I was like, I was a year and five months sober and I was still paying that money back for a year and five months, even without me not using or drinking. And that was, I found that extremely tough because when I was paying them back, when I was in addiction, I always said like, I, I'd basically give them money and then they give me more on tick until the following month. And that was, that was the way it worked. I'd give them money at the end of the month, they'd give me more drugs I'd give them more money and it just went like that. You know,
0: your story, it reminds me so much as well about when you talk to people who have gambling addictions and how it, it isolates you from the people you love because you, it turns you into a compulsive liar.
1: Yeah, I was a compulsive liar.
0: D- did you have a partner at this time?
1: No, I didn't. I had, a, I had a partner at the early stages and I basically broke up because this was when I was in Denmark and I basically thought I was either going to die or kill myself over the use. So I broke up, right, and like, oh, you honestly thought oh, was was my Rock Bottom in Denmark, and things just got so much worse. Like that's why I always hear a lot of people saying about Rock waiting for Rock Bottom, and Rock Bottom really does not exist. Like you can always go lower.
0: You talked about a very low point on our show, just the the, the time where you said you if a guy the car hadn't come along when it did. I would not be talking to you.
1: Yeah, so it was the the M one motorway, this was when I was walking night shifts and I would cycle under a tunnel under that motorway every day to walk. And like I'll just I'll just give you a little example, like even like into the inside of the mind of an addict or my mind in addiction, like even on weekends when people are relaxing or enjoying themselves, like I used to cycle around where you're looking for where would be a good place to kill myself. So maybe like a child wouldn't find me, but maybe someone walking their dog would. It's just pure insanity. And then that one night, I just cycled up with the full intentions of like running out in front of a truck or lorry. And I just sat on the side rail. I must have been there for about 20 minutes. I was just sitting there crying. And I don't even know. There was two guards. I don't even know their name. And so I'm guessing someone must have rang them and said there's someone sitting on the side rail or something. And they just literally pulled in, got me into the back of the back of the car, and then brought me home to my family.
0: Your family—do they understand what had actually happened?
1: Ah, oh, no, they knew. they—they like, they really did know how severe it was. Like, oh, I definitely took a few years off my family's life over the stress I caused them. And like, they—they they did know how severe. And they—they they done everything. Like, even when it came to like trying to get me into rehab and the drugs counseling, like, I never done any of that stuff. Like, they're the ones who went out and got that for me. You know.
0: Um. We talked as well about the last time you used. So if you talk about rock bottom, for you, that was as low as you did get. Yeah. De- just, again, describe to me where you were, what, what your head was like at that at that point in time.
1: Yes, yeah, so it was basically, that was... At, right at the end, like I was, that was when I was going through the and induced psychosis as well. So I was seeing things and hearing things that weren't there. Um, like I don't know if you've ever seen the Truman Show with Jim Carrey, but I thought that the whole world was fake, and I was like the, the main like I was everyone were actors, and I was in the show. I thought there was cameras in me mirrors. I thought there were drones recording me outside my window, and I had been using drugs. I got a lot of uh, coke and i forget how much it was and i started using it. I was off. I used it on the tuesday morning and i ran out of drugs on a friday night and i was crawling around my bedroom floor just looking for a little bits of cocaine that i could find but my nose was completely destroyed and blocked and then that's when i got a screwdriver around my bag and i just stabbed up both nostrils and basically my whole bedroom floor was just flooded in blood and when I eventually did wake up and I just went downstairs, I looked in the mirror, I broke down. And that was, that really was the first time that I could just see all the pain all the destruction that I caused in my life, my family's life. And then that was the day where just enough was enough and I never looked back since.
0: And what did you, all were the practical things you actually, because I know people will know people who are, you know, in the throes of what you're describing there and will have, you know, maybe be losing faith that they'll ever get them back or people maybe themselves might be going down this road. What was it? How did you crawl your way back up out of that hole?
1: Yeah, and the main, the main thing for anyone in addiction trying to get out of addiction is, like, even if you do relapse, just don't stop trying. Like, you only fail when you stop trying and like I relapsed so many times like I'd be off it for like four days or one week and then it was four weeks but I kept on trying and trying and trying and eventually um, it, it, it did happen but for me like so I really wouldn't recommend this for work for me, I completely isolated myself for a few months like I'd, I'd go to work and like I'd always have to be people looking out for me even me man had the whole road looking out for me like if he was leaving me house like where is he going? Where is he going? And I literally just sat in my house every weekend. I watched films. And then eventually my mom made me leave the house. I was just too paranoid. And she made me leave the house. I start going to the gym. And I just start getting into a routine. I cut toys with all the people that have no benefit in my life. I start surrounding myself with positivity. So I'm huge on fitness. I'm huge on mindfulness and meditation. I practice gratitude. Then I started reading articles about addiction and just learning what was going on. Like it's so like because the cocaine, what it does, it completely changes your brain chemistry. So I couldn't feel happiness for like a month or two. Like, and you just have to know like you're going to be in for the fight of your life. But what you get at the end of it is so worthy, you know.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's an extraordinary story. And was there a point where you realized I've actually I'm not going back now? That, that, you know, you, you, that you relapsed for the last time.
1: That was, the, so that day when I the, started the screwdriver, like I did say to myself loads of times, like I'm not going back, but like the triggers I went through were absolutely horrible. Like if I heard someone blowing their nose, I would like my car would start racing because it reminded me of it. And um, I, I couldn't sleep in my bedroom for a few months because like that's all that's where they used to give them drugs the most and that just felt like a prison cell to me so i had to sleep downstairs and just the effects it has on your brain it's absolutely crazy but things do get better you just have to keep on trying and i just think uh, for anyone in recovery like routine is absolutely crucial and i know a lot of people because a lot of young people get on to me and they feel because they can't drink or use anymore that they're missing out but they really aren't
0: why did you decide to do this? And I mean, so so appreciate and I think it's so, so helpful for a lot of people to hear your story and to see how you managed to, to, to turn things around. Why did you decide to do it?
1: I just, to be honest, I just I really just want to be like a positive role model and because we know there's so many people suffering out there through addiction, like even we get messages daily about it and... I just want people to know that like there is a good life out there and you, it doesn't matter how low you get, you can always overcome it. Like everybody no matter how low you feel, you have the power within inside you to overcome any obstacle that life throws in your way. And it's just all about just keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, and eventually you'll get to be where you want to be. But I suppose it really is just I just want to destroy help people because what you went through, I really don't want anyone to go through. And it really does break me heart now that there's people out there suffering.
0: And When you see how much coke in particular, but every, every kind of drug uh, is out there at the moment, just how normalised taking hard drugs has become. It, it must break your heart a little bit.
1: It's crazy and then like even sorry when we're on your show where we heard about the discussion about uh, legalization of cocaine like that sounds like something out of a film to me i'm like what good can come from that? Like, I do understand that it would probably reduce criminal activity, but the amount of increase in drug abuse, in drug addiction that would come from that, I just I just think that outweighs any good that the legalisation of. I just can't understand it. Like, well, how would that work? You can just go into a shop and buy a bag of pure cocaine? Like, I don't know. It's, it's insanity in any way, I think.
0: Although I'm sure you wouldn't be against the decriminalisation of... of- people who are addicted to, to hard drugs that's the other that's the other side of that argument
1: no not at all like the last thing these people need to do is being punished like they need to be going into rehabilitation centres they need love they need care they need support they don't need to be criminalised for it
0: so where to now for you David what, what, where would you like to go with your life after you know living through this hell and coming out the other end
1: We'd probably like to get a job maybe walking in like communications or something like that basically where they can just help people like i'm in a job at the minute now and' um, I, I won't really say much about it but it's not it's a very good environment for someone who was in recovery and hopefully you can just get a job where I can uh, just help as many people as they can and just basically be a, a benefit not just a number you know
0: and you're doing life coaching
1: I'm doing life coaching now uh, on the side, I find it very hard to do it just because I, I work Monday to Friday and I'm also doing a personal training course. That's every Saturday now for 17 weeks. So I'm extremely busy. So it's just hard doing everything and having a social life as well, you know. So hopefully a bit of goods can go from all of this.
0: <laughs> I definitely hope so. David, thanks very, very much.
1: I'll probably take it. Thanks.
0: And that was David Gorman. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed on this week's podcast, please click the link in the episode description or visit rte.ie forward slash helplines. Subscribe now to get new episodes on your feed when they're published and get in touch if there's someone you'd like to hear featured. On Twitter, we're at rteupfront, Upfront, or send us a WhatsApp message to 087 677 And don't forget to join me on RTE One every Monday night at 10.35. Talk to you then.